Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, my guest is Scott Adams, who is the creator of Dilbert, the author of the self-help book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, and most recently, the proponent of the Donald Trump Master Persuader thesis. Scott, you predicted that Trump would win in a landslide at a time when most everyone else thought his candidacy was a joke and that he didn't even have a chance of winning the Republican primary. What tipped you off as to Trump's political skill? Well, I have a background in hypnosis. I'm actually a trained, certified hypnotist, and I've been studying the ways of persuasion and influence um, for decades. And I use it in my work. So to be a, a writer, you have to be persuasive if you're doing it right. So I wanted to learn as much about the field as I could. And when I saw Donald Trump last summer, just about this time, um, I saw that he was using the techniques of a, of a highly trained persuader. And I thought, I've never seen that before in a political race. And because I have a, a sense of how powerful those tools are, I thought he was uh, basically entering a stick fight with a, a flamethrower and that it wouldn't be close in the end. Um, I'm an economist, and what I find strange is that there's, aren't, there's not a huge number of people who are extremely well-trained in the art of persuasion, because you'd think it would be so incredibly profitable for so many different companies. So, I mean, were there hundreds of people like you who saw this, but they just didn't say anything? Or do you, are, are you just, you know, seven or eight standard deviations above the mean in terms of your ability to recognize a persuader? Well... I don't know how I uh, stack up compared to other persuaders, but I have a couple of advantages that others don't. One is that I have no shame and no sense of embarrassment. So I was willing to make a prediction a year ago that was um, guaranteed to make me uh, the, the, the subject of scorn and ridicule for a full year, uh, which to a large extent it did. But at this point, people have figured out there's, there's uh, something to it. Um, and then the second thing is that uh, there's something I share with Trump that gave me a little extra insight, and that's that I also grew up in New York, in my case, upstate New York, but there's enough commonality there. Um, in a Republican household with uh, uh, a Methodist background, um, it was very similar to his upbringing. And there just is a style of thinking that is common to that area that doesn't translate everywhere else. So I was able to see him through a different filter. Let me give you an example. When Trump says stuff like, oh, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue or I'm going to waterboard those people or kill their families, or that's what a, a New Yorker sounds like. It's just how we talk. Um, every first draft that I write in my blog, uh, in the second pass, I have to go through and remove all the profanity and, and references to violence <laughs> because when I'm writing naturally, that's the way I talk and the way I think. I actually have to put a, a conscious filter on myself to be – uh, acceptable outside the state of New York. So, well, and, and, and by the way, if you ask people from New York, they'll laugh and say, yeah, he doesn't bother us. But, the, I mean, most of the media is from New York. Why were they claiming that he was crazy if they also had this mindset? Well, keep in mind that the, the media is a very uh, different subset than the rest of the world, right? So they're well-educated um, they're, they're sort of in their media bubble. Uh, I'm talking about the common person, and uh, Trump famously talks more like the construction worker than the CEO, so I think uh, that has a lot to do with it. 
And you've written you think being a master persuader could really help Trump if he becomes president. You've, you've talked about how Trump could defeat ISIS through a persuasion campaign. Yeah, pretty much every big problem, if you trace it back to its source, what is the one thing you have to get right? It's usually persuasion. So as an economist, you know that economies move on expectations. So, for example, if you think things are going to be great next year, you're willing to invest this year to take advantage of it. And if you think things are going downhill forever, you just sit on your savings and, and hope it lasts. So what people expect uh, creates their actions. So, yes, a, a master persuader could very well simply convince people that things are going right, going great. And one of two possibilities, either it's true and then people act um, properly uh, or it's not true and things aren't going great. But people will act as though it is <laughs> and then they'll invest and it will make things go great. So expectations drive everything in the economy. And then likewise with ISIS, you've heard Trump start to use the, uh, the phrase um, ideological warfare. Uh, you've heard his surrogates say we have to destroy the ISIS brand. And those are the types of things you didn't hear so much from other candidates or other administrations. It's a very Trumpian persuasion-oriented approach. Now, obviously, he's going to do all the usual military and, you know, spying and all, all the things that we're doing now. But you don't stop the recruiting unless you find a way to persuade. So when he talks about a psychological warfare and uh, branding, he's talking about persuasion. Um, are, are there master persuaders embedded throughout the world that are influencing us and we just don't realize it? Uh, yes, <laughs> that's the fast answer, which is not to say that I could necessarily identify them. Um, you know, I, I would only be guessing, but I can tell you from my own experience just working on this election, I've got to meet enough people to figure out to, to some degree, you know, where the real power is coming from in a lot of cases. And, and there are um, a handful of really influential people who have an outsized effect on, on the news. Was Steve Jobs a master persuader? He definitely had the skills, um, yes. Is President Obama one? President Obama was advised by one of the best experts in influence in the world, uh, so much so that I've nicknamed him Godzilla, uh, as in the monster of influence. His name is uh, Robert Cialdini, and he wrote the book Influence, which is the sort of the Bible of, of that field. And he just has a new one that just came out um, called Persuasion, which is uh, more about that influence. And he, he uh, consulted, among other cognitive scientists, I guess, uh, on Obama's campaign. So the effect of Obama's work, you know, given that the team was helping him, was master persuasion, yes. And are, are most of the ads we see on television, at least the ads run by large companies, do master persuaders have input into them? I would have to say there are a lot of commercials that don't seem to have any art in them, any persuasive art. Um, there's the level that you see in a simple advertisement. I would say that 95% of them are just more craft than art. You know, they don't rise to any kind of impressive level. And then there are a few that do. And I'm not entirely sure if those are because of luck. You know, something's going to be better than everything else, no matter what, um, or if there's some skill behind it. 
Uh, but certainly Apple has always had uh, a master persuader or two behind their advertisements. You've put together a master persuasion reading list in, on your blog. Do you think most people, let's say most people capable of graduating from a decent college are able to learn at least the art of persuasion and be able to at least recognize a master persuader if not become one themselves? Well, I will, uh, uh, I guess I'll have to frame that as you can learn just so much by reading about it. Um, and if I had to put a percentage on that, I'd say maybe two thirds you can figure out by reading. But there's a, a big part of it that you just have to experience. In other words, you have to actually practice hypnosis or actually be an advertising executive or, um, you know, actively try to persuade somebody uh, because there's, there's so much nuance in it, and a lot of it has to do with reading the, the subject. So you're looking for uh, micro changes in their, uh, their skin tone, their breathing, their, their pupil dilation, their, their muscles, their posture, and all that stuff. So to do that in real time and form sentences and have them um, formed almost automatically in the proper engineering for persuasion, that takes a lot of practice. So you're not going to be able to just read it and then go do it. Is this something a college could set up classes to teach and have students practice on each other? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So the hypnosis part is something you could directly practice on one person or in some cases one person to a group. Um, but persuasion in general is far bigger than that. You know, hypnosis is just the door that I, I entered this field. Um, so I think a probably cognitive behavioral scientist types are the ones who are uh, studying the right stuff in college. So if you were a dean of a business school, would you require students take hypnosis and try to make as many of them as possible master persuaders? I talk about something called the talent stack. Um, my book talks about that. And it's the idea that rather than trying to be the best in the world at one thing, which is very hard, you can't be Tiger Woods, right, unless you're Tiger Woods. Um, but, but most people can be really good at ordinary things that they can put together to do something extraordinary. So in my case, uh, I'm not the best artist and I'm not the best writer, but I can do both of those things pretty well. So that allows me to be a, a, a world-famous cartoonist. And I layer a few other skills on top of that. But among the skills that work with just about everything, any kind of job, any kind of life, any kind of career aspiration, life aspiration, would be influence, just learning how to persuade people. Now, I wouldn't say that that necessarily has to be hypnosis, but that field should be layered onto just about anything. There's, there's no one who wouldn't have um, immense gain from that. Um, this podcast is, at least when I started, it was mainly directed to something called the rationality community. It was based on less wrong. And a lot of people in the rationality community are kind of on the autism spectrum or at least close to it. And there's sort of, it's very difficult. I, I am too. And we sort of have tremendous difficulty interpreting normal human behavior. And it's probably hopeless for us to become master persuaders. At least I would, I would think that. Would you... Have you dealt with people on the autism spectrum? You probably have in California. Yeah, lots of times. Um, I, obviously, I'm surrounded by them because uh, the people who read my comic and like it the most <laughs> tend to be on the spectrum. Um, so you make a good point. Since reading other people's faces is essential to doing persuasion in person, um, I would think it would be much harder if you couldn't do that. Now, since I've 
uh, I'm not on the autism scale. I can't uh, imagine it and then describe how hard it would be or easy, but I imagine it would be much harder. Um, but you would still be able to do all of the persuasion that was not person to person. So any written persuasion, you can certainly learn uh, how to advertise, how to how to create graphic images that were more compelling. You can learn all that for sure. Okay. Although we couldn't as easily get the feedback when trying to persuade a, an individual by watching them and seeing how they respond. You'd have to get sort of right. feedback from editors and from readers. Right. But that's also where most persuasion happens, right? Most of it is not one-to-one. It's, it's companies or organizations trying to persuade the masses. Mm-hmm. So if, if Trump does win in a landslide, you're going to have enormous credibility and that'll give you a lot of power. Have you given thought to how you might use that power after the election? <laughs> um, I have, actually. Now, obviously, a lot depends on how the actual outcome of the election goes, as you mentioned. But if things go the way I'm predicting, um, I will ha- have created a situation where I'm one of the most credible people in the United States. Now, I realize that's a ridiculous thing to say, because, and anybody listening to this to this podcast right now probably did some kind of an involuntary, you know, one of those noises, like, God, this guy's full of himself. But if you think about it, no one has really attempted to carve out a space as being objective, because that's not how money works. You know, money follows people who are the opposite of objective. They're the people who take your side. That's the people you want to give your money to. You want to buy their book and reinforce your own brilliance. So it turns out that for economic reasons, it's it's a big vacant space, <laughs> and it should be the space everybody's trying to occupy. But because I have my own resources and I have a uh, an impulse toward the public good, I can actually occupy that space. And if anybody's willing to listen, I will do my level best to objectively say what the situation is. And I think that adds value because the more points of view you have, the you know the richer the discussion, and the more likely you're going to accidentally run into a, a great idea. So you see yourself as sort of a referee where different sides would argue and you would say, oh, come on, this side is clearly much better and this is the honest opinion. Or you'd say maybe I can't, both sides have a good point. Well, I think the the special area that I can occupy is seeing past confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias is the human tendency to imagine that all evidence supports what you already thought was true. Um, but you just have to learn that Everybody is looking at the same evidence and interpreting it as their uh, their theory is also true. So you can't all be right if the theories are competing. Um, so I have a a different uh, let's say a different relationship with confirmation bias because I actively try to avoid the things that would cause it. Now one of the things that would cause it would be joining a group. So if I if I registered as either Democrat or Republican. I would have a strong tendency subconsciously to start agreeing with anything that came out of those groups. So I don't do that. Likewise, if I voted, so I don't vote. But if I did vote, it would bind me to my opinion and everything my candidate did would start looking brilliant to me and everything other people did would start looking bad. And now on top of that, since I've studied persuasion for a long time, I think I just have a little bit better um, practiced skill in identifying where there's uh, confirmation bias as opposed to real evidence. So let me give you an example. 
the the stuff that everybody's talking about in terms of Hillary Clinton's health is primarily confirmation bias, meaning if you were just to look at a cough individually, just by itself, a cough is just a cough, and pneumonia is just pneumonia, and, and even even dehydration isn't the the most uh, rare thing in the world, and maybe not much to think about. But when you already believe that she's unhealthy, as by the way I do, that it all looks like it's confirming the diagnosis, but it's not. It's just a bunch of facts that you can fit to that uh, fit to that interpretation. Now, here's the point about being um, objective. On the other side, you're seeing an almost identical and analogous situation with the charges that Trump is a racist. Because if you were to break down any one of those charges, they sort of disappear, right? Because uh, you take the Judge Curiel um, blow up where Trump said uh, that he wouldn't get a unbiased opinion from a, quote, Mexican judge. Now, as soon as you hear that, you say, my God, there's more racism. This guy is a crazy racist. But if you if you looked at that in uh, in isolation, you'd say to yourself, OK, first of all, uh, Americans who have Mexican heritage typically refer to themselves as Mexican. And when they do it, they're not saying I'm a resident of Mexico. They're saying that's my nationality. Likewise, Americans who have, you know, let's say Italian parents on both sides will almost always refer to themselves as Italians. And nobody's confused that they're talking about Italy. They're just talking about their nationality. So Trump used the same language that the people used. He just said he's a Mexican judge. Now, even when it comes out of my mouth, just there, it still sounds a little racist, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. but, but my point is, it's the same language everybody uses about every ethnicity. I would call myself Irish. And, and I, I don't know how little blood I have that actually comes from Ireland. Uh, it's, it's just the way people talk. So now you see it out of context. And by the way, the whole thing about being, being biased is, is common sense. Everybody's biased by their environment. And what could have more impact on you in terms of your environment than the thoughts and wishes of your family members? And if you have family members who actually came from Mexico, and you're talking about a case involving the person who's most famous for being an antagonist to Mexico, uh, any reasonable person would look at that situation and say, does Judge Curiel, Curiel want to go to the next family reunion and be comfortable or not? Now, you're going to say, but he's a professional, he's a judge, you're being a racist if you think he can't overcome that. No, I'm saying the opposite of that. I'm saying that 100% of humans in a similar situation where something that involved their own parents would be expected to be a little bit biased. Now, we could also expect them to do their level best to see past it, but as a defendant, um, as Trump is, it's good persuasion to put that out there in advance because either it uh, causes him to overcompensate, which would be good persuasion, or when he rules against Trump, Trump can say, see, I told you from the beginning, I got a biased judge, I better appeal this. Um, so if you look at any of these things in isolation, they don't look like what um, what the big picture might suggest. You know, Trump is far less racist. Uh, Clinton is far less uh, unhealthy. Both sides are looking at uh, confirmation bias. And I'm probably the only person in the universe who would tell you both of those examples and, and be objective about it because they're, you know, they're on opposite sides of the aisle. You, you did say quite a while ago in your blog that you thought Hillary Clinton might be unhealthy and this would cause her a huge problem. How did you know? Well, 
so one of the skills of a hypnotist, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, is a fine observation of a, of a person's um, physicality. So you're looking for a baseline, and then as you do your hypnosis and your suggestion, you're seeing if it changes. So does somebody look more relaxed, less relaxed? Are they breathing harder um, or less hard? And so I'm just sort of tuned to faces in that way because it's it's how I've been trained. And what I noticed in Hillary Clinton was not that she was unhealthy per se, and I have no medical training, so I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, give it that kind of credibility. But what I noticed is there was a lot of variability, meaning that from day to day, she looked very different. Her her, um, her face, her eyes, her energy level, the way she talked uh, was very different. And that's not the case with any of the other candidates who were running. Uh, if you saw Chris Christie on any day, he was the same guy every day, all right? Um, same for Carly Fiorina. She was pretty much Carly Fiorina every single time, and same with Trump. But this variability was sort of a tell that told me that either there's something about medications that aren't always at the right level, or there's something about an underlying situ uh, health situation, which could have been as, as minor as uh, having trouble sleeping, right? I mean, because... Just being tired is a pretty big deal to your health. So I didn't have any speculation about what the cause was. It's just that that variability uh, is usually associated with some kind of uh, health up and down, which is not associated with good health. So it wasn't a guaranteed prediction, but in the spirit of showing people how this persuasion stuff can be used to predict, um, and in order to gain credibility, I've been saying, I'm not going to describe what happened and put my filter on the past because that's too easy. I'm going to predict as far out as I can where I see things heading. And then you can look at my prediction. You can I show my work. I tell why I predict. And then you can look at the outcome. So December of 2015, I said that Clinton's variability was masking what uh, I think I put a 75% chance that she would have some major illness um, that was uncovered before Election Day. Do you think if Clinton drops out and they say put Biden in his play, in her place, do you think Biden will be able to beat Trump? Or uh, no, um, I don't think so. Because first of all, a, a pretty big part of uh, Clinton's support has to do with her gender. Um, there are a lot of because people don't really make uh, decisions based on facts and policies; they only think they do. We we tend to like people for their personalities, for for whether they scare us or don't scare us whether they promise to fix all our problems, you know, just emotional kinds of uh, things. So I always go to that for uh, my predictions. Uh, a lot of people in the rationality community sort of think that humans have far less agency than we consciously think we do. Is that oh. sort of what you're getting at, that we think we're making these rational decisions, but we're really not, we're really, other things are pushing us? Yes. In hypnosis, one of the things you learn, and in fact, it's so important that you can't even do hypnosis until you fully uh, embrace this knowledge, and that is that people are never rational. Now, your model of the world and most people's model of the world is that most people are rational most of the time. You might think you're a little more rational than other people because it always feels that way to, to the individual. But basically, you think people are rational most of the time, and every once in a while, they get silly. But the hypnotist reverses that and says, no, you're pretty much irrational all the time, and you're always irrational on the big decisions. You can use your rational mind for some things like 
Um, if you're shopping for a light bulb, you can check what wattage you need, and you know you can make rational decisions in very minor ways. But if you're deciding who to marry, what uh, career to take, where to live, what house to buy, even what car to buy, those are almost always dominated by emotional, irrational forces. Um, so following that, uh, that path a little further, um, I also don't believe in free will. I believe that free will is completely an illusion and that the brain um, is just a what I call a, a moist – well, I call the human being a moist robot. And uh, I extend that to the brain and say that the rules of physics don't stop when they reach your skull. So whatever is happening inside your skull is the same physics as everywhere else in the world. And as far as we know, physics doesn't have much in terms of options, right, at the – at the, the smallest level, you know, the quantum level, there's uncertainty and things are bouncing around. But as soon as that stuff is summed up to anything that we can you know, care about, like the size of any component of the brain that we can see under a microscope, by the time it gets that size, it's all determinist, you know, deterministic. You know, the, a certain, a certain uh, cause is always going to have the very specific effect if, if you could somehow duplicate that exact environment twice. Does that have any moral implications? I mean, you, you could see how that could lead to nihilism where you just say, well, I'll just do whatever's fun for now because what does it matter? Well, let me take myself as an example. So you've heard my philosophy, and the question is, you know, therefore am I a nihilist and do I have no morals? And my experience is the opposite because my experience is that the way I seem to be designed, almost as an observer here, I'm, I'm looking at myself, is that humans are born selfish because babies have to be completely selfish. Uh, and then as they get older and they learn to take care of themselves, maybe they can do a little bit for other people too. But sometime around the, the time you're middle age, you're, yeah, you're pretty much giving more than you're getting. And by the time you're old, you've given away, uh, you've given away everything. And you literally die and your last act is giving away your, your estate. So the, the natural arc of a life is that once you get yours, um, your biology, I think, uh, has evolved that you just start looking how you can help the family, how you can help your tribe, how you can help the world. So I can tell you for myself, I wake up every day with my non-belief in free will, and I'm excited to see what I can do to make the world a little bit better place. Um, you talk about dying, but you've all, I've heard you say that you don't, intend on dying you're making plans to live forever is that is that right it's absolutely right um in a variety of ways you know i'm hoping that science will provide more options but if you imagine somebody like me i'm a, a public figure I, I write you know all the time so that the internet has this huge repository of all of my ideas and thinking the very the way that i talk you know the style that i put my sentences in Plus, there's video of me giving speeches and talking this, what we're doing right now. And all of this will live forever. So it's, it's reasonable to believe that at some point you could recreate me in software. In other words, it would be a being that was so similar to what you experience of me now that it would be indistinguishable. Now, you might say, hey, but that's not really you. And I would say, uh, I'm not so sure. I, I, think that, I think that's just a perception and it's probably a perception that's baked into us, so we feel it's important, but it probably isn't.
it probably isn't important in any way. All right. Well, I want to now try to persuade you to do something. Um, sure. You want to live forever. I, I do too. That's an, a, a perfectly good goal. And you're right. It might be possible to reconstruct you from everything that you've done. But w just to be a bit more sure, what about also preserving your brain through cryonics? I'm a member of cryonics, of the cryonics provider Alcor. I'm sure the cost would be trivial to you. Another advantage of joining cryonics is that there'll be an organization that's devoted to bringing its people back. Maybe in 100 years we'll have a technology to bring you back, but there might not be anyone who wants to. If you are a member of Alcor, hopefully if Alcor has survived long enough, they'll say, okay, now we can, now we'll bring back everyone. And of course, as I'm sure you know, your brain is enormously complex. There's gonna be more information stored in your frozen brain than exists in everything you've created. Right. Well, let me uh, say a few things about that. Um, number one, I should have also mentioned that um, at some point in the future, we'll be able to look at my DNA, which I hope to save, and then you compare it to all the, the things that I've learned, um, which you could take from the, the Internet record. Um, and that probably would be enough to create a human that has everything except memories of the past. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue that that might be an advantage because – can I swear on your podcast? Sure. <laughs> um, I'm only speaking personally, but for me, everything in my life that's fucked up is in the past. And I don't want to remember any of it. Like, you know, from the – from let's say the age of 18 and younger, no, I'll go, to, I'll go to like 28. I don't want to remember any of it. And so if I could start fresh at 28 – and somebody said, look, you know, you don't remember any of this stuff, but we're going to start fresh and, you know, you get to start from here because we got, we got, we know enough about you to rebuild you at this age. I'm sure that would be better. Really? I mean, we're pretty close to being able to clone people. So would you be happy with someone creating a clone of you and, you know, and said, okay, just for fun, you know, I'll be willing to create a clone of you, but only if then I can kill you. So there's a baby you uh, born, you give the baby a lot of money, you make sure it's with good parents. And then would you be like, yeah, I'd, I'd rather have a baby me being cloned and then die than continue with my own life. Well, I worry about a clone of me that I allowed to get to an adult age because I, I like masturbation so much. So I think it would turn me gay. I <laughs> I, that's just a, it's just a hypothesis. Um, but I've, I actually uh, had an idea for a movie that I'll, I'll give to you since I'm never going to write this movie about some badass uh, crime fighter who would always store some of his DNA, so if he got killed in the fight, um, he would have someone else raise a new version of him, which he would update his the things he's learned over his life to avoid getting killed, and each new version of him would be a, a better, smarter version, um, but just as tenacious and, and would repeat the cycle. So I think it would be fun to to sort of try to build a clone that didn't have your problems. You know, you could you could just give it the wisdom and skip the bad stuff. Okay. Or if you if you are chronically preserved and you, they download your brain to a computer, you could modify your own program and delete memories that you didn't like. Yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, that's a good example of stuff that might be options in the future. Yeah. So it, it, if you ask me, do it, do I want to you know preserve myself forever with today's technology? The answer is no, because it's not there. So I'm imagining that in 20 years, we've got, you know, five good ways to do this. Mm -hmm. But why take the chance? I mean, you, you know, you seem healthy, but you, of course, know you could have a heart attack at any time. 
why not have Chronix as a backup? Uh, well, if I die, I don't really care, do I? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's sort of a an objective of the living. Uh, once you're dead, you you probably don't have any objectives. <laughs> That's a good uh, question. Does, does, does that not make sense? Ah. Uh, well, you're sort of getting into what a utility function is. Could you have a utility function even if you're not alive? You can imagine there's sort of a a Scott Adams brain, you know, that it, it sort of exists in a math, it's a mathematical structure and it has certain preferences and it has those preferences even if you don't exist. Um, yeah, you know, that brings me to another idea I had, which is it seems to me that I could form a trust before I die that would allow uh, me to preserve all my memories in whatever digital form, my DNA and everything, and have the trust do nothing but wait until robots are advanced enough that I can put my personality into a robot. Uh, yeah, that's certainly true. And that, but that you could argue that's something that Chronix organizations are working towards. Are they thinking of putting human um, intelligence into a robot, or are they looking at just putting it into another body? Well, they're, they're looking at both. A lot of people who are interested in Chronix think it's going to we'll revive people after a singularity, and we won't really be putting the people who are revived into bodies. But the organizations themselves are just preserving, you know, preserving people until they can do something. And they're saying, look, right now we, we're not close to being able to revive people. I, I think that people are overrating the value of their own memories. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let me let me give you an example. I I use this story in a different context usually, but it makes sense here. I've had the uh, fortunate or unfortunate experience of watching a number of uh, senior citizens die um, and be present for the last couple of weeks of life. And it was several grandparents on you know, in-law side, my side, and some parents, and they all had a very similar arc. So toward the end, in the last several days of life in hospitals in each case, uh, the one thing that none of them seemed to care about was anybody else in the room? Because once you reach that moment, you just sort of want to be dead, and you're not thinking, oh, my memory is my, you know, how can I spend five more minutes with people? You care about that the final month of your life, but when it gets to the last few days, you do not care about your memories. And I, I think we just put too much value on memories. Yeah, that, that certainly could be true. You, you wrote about how your, your father had an, an awful death, Another advantage of cryonics is that if it became commonplace, people would preserve themselves before they lost their minds. And that would really, you know, one of the worst things I think I'm sure you agree our society does is that we really, we torture people who are about to die by not giving them peaceful deaths. Yeah, so the story you referenced was, the context of that was arguing that um, we should have the right to a doctor-assisted uh, death if the situation warrants. And my parents didn't get that option, um, so I never asked them if they would take it because it wasn't an option. But I'm I'm certain that my mother would have, and I don't know about my father, but he, he probably would have liked to have the option. Uh, it has always seemed to me insanely cruel that people uh, people I don't know you know, people in the government, other voters who have voted for certain laws, that when I'm standing in a room with my dying father and we're the only ones in the room, that somebody I don't know gets to determine how long he suffers. And to me, that 
that is as close to a crime as you can get. And so uh, the blog article that you were referencing earlier, I went so far as to say that I considered anybody who, who's, who was against doctor-assisted dying, at least in the cases where it's called for, that anybody who was against that was complicit in torturing my parents to death, and that my, my opinion of them would be the same as anyone else who had attacked and killed my family. Um, and so they should expect that's, that type of attitude coming their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, let me ask your help on uh, persuasion issue. A lot of people, a lot of my podcast listeners are very concerned about what artificial intelligence is going to do. How could we persuade more people to take seriously the threat of unfriendly artificial intelligence? And people sort of pattern match that determinator all that science fiction stuff. You don't have to worry about it. If we're genuinely mm. concerned that this is probably going to exterminate our species. What? Um, probably science fiction, because people are not rational. So if you if you put together a, a really good rational case for why people should be concerned about this, and um, I know enough about this area to know that there is one. You know, the the smartest people in the world pretty much agree that if you're not paying attention to the coming singularity, <laughs> it's going to be a real big problem. Um, so I'm on board on that argument. But I don't think the average person, let's say 80% of the public, will ever be able to embrace that. It's just a little too abstract. But they certainly can watch a cool science fiction movie in which that's the plot, or read a book in which that's the plot, or maybe watch a, a, you know, a series on PBS or something where, where they talk about it in some fictional form. So there might be a, a way to get at it as fiction. Uh, but that's the best suggestion I have right now. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, something else. I, I think one of our species' biggest mistakes is not exterminating mosquitoes that bite people. We probably have the technology yeah. to do it. Mosquitoes like kill over like half a million people a year. We, you know, we we extinguish a huge number of species every day without even trying. So there's something like I forgot like around 13 species of mosquitoes that bite people. It's a tiny number of insects. So at almost no cost to the environment, we could just stop this Holocaust from occurring, yet people are resistant. What? Um, I don't know enough about this topic, but is there, there's no um, downstream effect on whatever eats bugs? Um, birds? I, I think, I mean, there might be some, but it's so, it, it's just such a tiny percent of insects. And again, we exterminate so many species all the time anyway, without trying. That it's, but, it's, you, but you know, I'm, I'm no bird, but I would think that mosquitoes would be extra delicious. So birds would be quite pissed off with this plant. Unless another species of insect just quickly took over that, or another species of mosquito oh. that didn't bite us to say, oh, okay, I'll move into this ecosystem now. And... Well, while you're at it, can you get rid of flies? I don't like flies, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm with you. Not only am I with you, but if you told me that, you know, seven species of birds would be eradicated because their food supply was gone when the mosquitoes left, I would also say, birds, again, totally overrated. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, how many things have gone, I hate to say this, but how many things have gone extinct in my lifetime? So far, the total number of things that have gone extinct that I have personally missed, still zero. <laughs> still, yeah, still waiting for that first time. I'm like, damn, where's the platypus when I need it? You know, that, that situation just never comes up. So do you have any suggestions for how people who care about this could persuade others to say this, it's, 
You know, it sounds awful that we're exterminating a whole species, but really not doing it is kind of like Nazi-ish, given the harm that mosquitoes cause. Yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about the topic again, but I'd be fascinated to hear what Bill Gates says about it. The Gates Foundation he, is looking into it, I've read. Uh, so, so what does it mean to look into it? Because isn't it as simple as these bugs are only bad and not good, let's kill them? Yeah, I mean, they're, I think they're going through the political process. They're trying you know, to get approval for it. They're, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what. I've just, from the people who care, they say the Gates Foundation is hoping to do it in a few years. But, of course, they're not, they're not sure they're going to. And I, I doubt the Gates Foundation is going to say, well, we have all this opposition, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope they do get rid of them because a life without uh, bugs would be better. Every once in a while, I travel to a place that has few or no bugs. You know, Hawaii is one of them. And on most days, my backyard in California, I just don't have any bugs. Um, and it is such a different experience than going to, say, the northeast in the summer, and you're, you're just walking in a swarm of, of things that are hitting you in the eyes and ears and biting you. So, yeah, I'm in favor of getting rid of bugs. Okay. Yeah, I live in the Northeast, and our half of our backyard is unusable in the summer. <laughs> There's too many bugs. Well, let me ask you now about um, your your book, how, how to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. So, your your I thought your major thesis was that people should have um, systems and not goals. Is that right? Yes, um, and I could explain that a little more if you like. Sure. So the problem with goals is that goals made sense in simple times. So if you were, let's say, a farmer 100 years ago and you had a goal of clearing 40 acres before winter, that probably made perfect sense. You knew how to do it. If you worked hard, you could do it. And there's no way that would be a bad idea. But we now live in a world where everything is changing so quickly and the complexity is overwhelming and everything's connected to everything else that if you focus on something for 10 minutes, the entire world has changed and it might not even be a good thing an hour from now. So, you know, it wasn't too long ago if you were thinking, hey, I think I'll start a limousine company. Limousine companies look like they're doing pretty good. I like that work. And then Uber comes along and whoops, you know, all the limousine companies are pretty much struggling around a business. So you have to be nimble and, and build a system, if we're talking about your career anyway, specifically, uh, where you have made yourself more valuable no matter what is happening in your environment. So that would be a good system. So where I was talking earlier about developing your talent stack, I try to intelligently put together talents that work really well together and make me more unique. So one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is that I'm thinking one of the areas that I might expand is doing more public speaking or uh, you know, some kind of digital uh, presence like this. And so I just jump into it, do it wrong until I can figure out how to do it right and build that skill as I go because it layers well with the other stuff I do. Um, so that's a system. But likewise, um, in the book, I talk about systems for fitness, uh, exercise and diet, and they're all different approaches. But the idea is that one person's system isn't necessarily going to work for someone else. But the thing you want to do is to make sure that every day you wake up, you're doing something that is getting you closer to some set of positive outcomes that you don't know exactly which one you're going to get, but you're making yourself more valuable. So these options are getting closer for you. Um, let, let me give you a concrete example. It's hard to talk, hard to talk about this without examples. So when I started blogging, 
I didn't know where that would lead, and it didn't matter because I knew I was doing something that I could probably get good at, and I was going to do it in public. And if I did it every day, opportunities would almost certainly come my way. I just didn't know what they were. Now, as it turned out, that that my blogging created offers for uh, um, books, so I got book deals out of it. Uh, book deals turned into speaking uh, requests. So it has this immense financial benefit, you know, changes my whole career arc. But when I started doing it, I didn't know where it was going. I just knew that if I did this well in public long enough, uh, a lot of possibilities would open up, and that's what happened. Well, how did you know that would open up possibilities compared to something, let's say, like playing a video game, which would not open up new possibilities? Like what, what's the trait? Well, uh, first of all, I was adding a new skill to the skills I had, so that always makes me more valuable and gives me more options. But I tell people to um, practice out loud anything they're good at. So if you're good at anything, make sure other people see it. Now, blogging is one of those things that's built built for that very thing. Um, so the more people who saw me doing something well, the better my odds were. Okay, so you also have to not be afraid of being embarrassed, right? Yeah, that takes some work. Um, I have a natural advantage in that. I think I was born without a, a normal sense of shame. So I, I can withstand immense levels of embarrassment and even future embarrassment, you know, whether I know it's coming or if I do something wrong, I'm really going to be embarrassed because uh, I try to look for things in terms of projects or, you know, direction for my career or life, things that if they don't work, I'm still going to come out ahead. And that's a big part of the, the system's philosophy. So if I'm learning a new skill, if I'm building contacts, um, if I'm getting a thicker skin, uh, these are all things that I'm going to be able to take with me no matter whether my project works or not. Um, I have a theory. I wonder what you think of it. Now, first, I should say I teach it at women's college. And one of my theories is that men have an advantage as entrepreneurs because of the high school dating culture. That you know, it's usually men who ask out women, and for most men, you get rejected a lot, and it really is devastating. But then eventually becomes so what, and so you sort of lose the sense of shame. Well, a lot of women don't go through that, and so they're more afraid of being rejected. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm, I'm going to agree. I will agree with that, but I'm going to amplify it backwards. To there's probably an evolutionary uh, reason for that because if you think about it, men are expendable. Yes. You know, we. <laughs> You know, we do our little sperm thing. We, you know, about all we're good for is, at least in you know caveman terms, is making sure that the other men don't kill the women that we just got pregnant. That's <laughs> <laughs> sort of you know, and if men didn't exist, we wouldn't need that because it's just protecting against other men. Now I'm oversimplifying, oversimplifying, but I think everybody listening to this gets the basic idea that men are uh, less valuable, yeah. you know, per per person in a biological sense, not in any any kind of moral sense. Um, in that situation, you would expect that men would be more risk takers because if you, if you fail, you know, you might as well be dead and there's lots of you anyway and there's extra ones. So you'd expect that men would be risk takers and would have the tools to take bigger risks simply because we're less valuable. You know, if a, if a woman takes a risk and dies, then there's your source of creating new babies. Uh, but if a man dies, there's a hundred men behind him that want to be the father of that next baby. So um, I think that that risk-taking impulse is likely to carry through into normal life and allow a man to um, simply be rejected more often and be comfortable with it. 
than than a woman. Now, um, let me quickly add that every individual is different. So, you know, whether or not there's some general statement that's true, it doesn't mean that there isn't you know some woman who's way better at that than men, uh, etc. So, do you think women should seek out opportunities to be embarrassed and get rejected when they're young? So this doesn't it's not a block to their future success. I took the Dale Carnegie course that teaches you nominally it teaches you how to be a public speaker, but a big part of that process is they actually teach you how to withstand public embarrassment. So uh, they actually have uh, exercises where you you embarrass yourself in front of the class, mm -hmm. uh, and then you realize that nothing bad happened, and then every every time you give a talk, it's sort of an opportunity for embarrassment. And the Dale Carnegie course teaches that you know they only give you positive reinforcement no matter how bad you are. So, so through practice, you learn to uh, endure um, the sense of risk and embarrassment because you just get used to it. It's a it's a skill you can actually learn. It doesn't seem like it is because if you're shy, you think, oh my God, I'm just born shy. But it turns out it's, you can actually learn how to overcome shyness. It's just practice. Um, so the quick answer is, I don't know what you can do for childhood development, but if, if you're already an adult, i.e. the people listening to this podcast, and you feel that you'd like to you know, be able to better withstand humiliation and uh, you know, embarrassment so that you can have a career advantage, there's a, there's a way. You know, the Dale Carnegie course is one, there must be others. Uh, so, and colleges should probably require students to do more public speaking. I think... It's just always good to put people in a situation where they're going to be embarrassed and fail, but not but not die and not lose all their money, because um, I failed more than anybody, and that's that was one of the themes throughout the book we were mentioning. Uh, I counted up over thirty business-related things that I failed at. You know, a couple of corporate careers. I've tried buying real estate and ended up, you know, buying high and selling low. I've invented things that nobody cared about. I've written software nobody bought, and on and on and on. And every time one of those things didn't work, it felt bad for about a day, and then I just tried something else and got excited about the new thing because, hey, I've got free time now. So there's definitely a, a, a thick skin that you can develop over time. You can just learn to do it. Well, do you think in the multiverse, I mean, most Scott Adams have failed at everything they've tried? <laughs> uh, I got to tell you, my life has been so unusual that even if you allow that everybody's life is just a coincidence because, you know, there was only one thing that did happen out of all the things that could have happened. Um, the fact that my life is so almost identical to what I fantasized as a child but then at some point thought was out of reach. You know, as, as a six-year-old, I thought, I would like to be a world-famous cartoonist. But by the time I was a teenager, I, I realized that was stupid because I'm like, okay, there's, you know, uh, what, however many people there were in the world, four or five billion at the time, and I'm thinking, and there's only, you know, a handful of famous cartoonists. Ridiculous. But uh, eventually I got over that. <laughs> and you see, that's sort of like you, you talk about affirmations in your book. Right. And what, that's where we're saying something like, you know, I, Scott Adams, will be a famous cartoonist. You say that every day. Yeah. So I have to be careful when I talk about affirmations, because if I don't give the complete explanation, it sounds like I believe in magic uh, or some kind of weird new agey stuff. So I've never said that. 
what I have said is that I have used affirmations, which is just the process of uh, writing down some statement of what you want in the future um, on a number of occasions, and my success seems highly correlated, you know, beyond what I can imagine would be coincidence uh, when I use the affirmations. I mean, just the fact that I, you know, one of my affirmations was to be a best-selling author when I had never even taken a course on how to write, <laughs> and, and that happened, you know, to become a, uh, a syndicated cartoonist was deeply unlikely for someone who had never taken a, an art class except, well, I actually I took one drawing class in college, but it didn't really help for cartooning. Um, so almost everything in my life has been so deeply unlikely that uh, I look around for reasons, and most of those times I was doing affirmations. But here are some um, non-magical reasons why affirmations might appear to work, and I'll use the word appear. One might be confirmation bias, where you just expect it to work and then you just see evidence of it working, or or, or maybe selective memory, where you, um, you just forget the times it didn't work. And so you just remember all the times it did and say, hey, it worked 100%. So that, that could be the explanation. Another one is, um, and this is my favorite one, and again, these are all just possible explanations. My favorite one is that the human mind did not evolve to give us truth or reality. The brain is not a, is not a way to see reality. It's just a way that keeps you alive. So you and I could have completely different views of reality, and probably do, um, but we can stand next to each other in the grocery store and buy vegetables and go home and eat them, and we both live. So evolution only wants you to survive. If you did that, it didn't need to make you any smarter. And so probably what we imagine as our reality, like right down to the, the hand you see you know, on the end of your arm and you know, the sequence of events, it's probably more subjective than you think because we don't have the capability to see the world objectively. We never needed it. Um, so probably the affirmations are activating some mechanism in the sense that your brain is like a user interface, and if you push the right button, you get a certain result, and you don't have to know why that works. I mean, you don't have to know how the circuitry is put together. You can simply observe it. I don't, that, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I don't quite understand that. Are you saying that even though you're convinced you're a famous cartoonist, that if I studied your life, I would conclude that you're really not? Or are you saying you were pushed somehow, you were warping reality to become a famous cartoonist? I'm not quite... Uh, I'll give you the, the, the simple version and then the extreme version. So the, the simple version is that you have a different religion than I do. And so you think that God is looking at you and talking to you and you know, judging your actions. That's a very different reality than what I'm experiencing, because in my reality, none of that even exists. Um, so to me, you would be walking around in a hallucination all day long, and I would see it from the outside. But to you, I'm the one who's in the hallucination, because I don't see these things that are so clear. Now, that's, that's the mild example. And, and that one we can verify to be as true as anything seems to be true. Um, but imagine, all, but here's the deeper one. Maybe I'm just what I think I am, or I think I'm a, let's say I think I am a cartoonist, forget about the real reality. I think I'm a cartoonist talking to you on a podcast. But you think you're uh, shaped like a beaver and you're talking to your, you know, your son. Mm -hmm. But every, you stay alive and I stay alive. And as long as our stories don't conflict, we're good. Let me give you a better example of that. 
Um, when I get together with my siblings, we'll sometimes talk about things that happened in our childhood. And I'll say, do you remember the time I did blah, blah, blah? And my brother will look at me and say, um, that was me. You, you didn't even do that. You've actually like incorporated a whole story into your head that was just me. And what the amazing part about this is that it didn't matter, meaning that I had a whole different reality in my head. I mean, a very different reality, something something important in my childhood that I thought I had done that I'd never even done. Um, and my brother had a different one. But as long as they didn't conflict, it was okay for us to have different realities. Let me push back a bit on that. You, you talked before about the primary evolutionary value of men is to fight other men. You're fighting someone. It really is important that you're close to reality. Wouldn't evolution strongly push people to get reality right, at least in the context no, of war? No, because that's sort of an old version of uh, evolution, as I understand it. And people will be quick to tell me I'm not the expert on science and evolution, and they'd be right. Um, but evolution isn't the uh, survival of the fittest. That's sort of the cartoony version. Evolution is survival of the things that didn't die. Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And sometimes that reason is they just happen to be lucky and they didn't have a predator. All right. So it has nothing to do with fitness. So, you know, if if men exist, <laughs> you know, if our reality is the way I, I seem to perceive it, that there are such things as men and such things as women, then biologically men have a, a lower value. Okay. I mean, you know, Genghis Khan did very well, evolutionarily speaking, but he, he probably had a very good grasp of reality, and that probably helped him conquer. Well, but it's also true that if he imagined everything he was doing was to satisfy an invisible demon that came to him and talked to him in his hut every night in the shape of a bird, he might do exactly the same thing. So he could be completely delusional and have no sense of reality and still accomplished everything that he accomplished. So, no, I don't think there's a correlation between how well you perceive reality and how well you succeed. Okay. Well, um, well thank you very much. I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me on The Future Strategist. It's my pleasure. I love, I love this sort of forum. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Good night. Good night. All right. If you like The Future Strategist, please consider joining my Facebook group, which is just called Future Strategist, or leaving me a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Bye-bye.